Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what are the key takeaways from the 2022 Auditor General Report? We'll get into that for you. Prime Minister Trudeau says nothing's off the table when it comes to Alberta's Sovereignty Act. We'll discuss the latest details with Daniel Bailan, the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. And does hosting a world sporting event like FIFA World Cup, for instance, actually make that country or that city money? Interesting story. We'll get into that and give you the details as we continue the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One thing that jumped out yesterday as we listened to Bonnie Lissick is uh, about auto insurance. You know, we've talked about everything else going up in price and inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this has always been the bane of our existence. I mean, we need it. It's, it's the, law, the law. You know, you can't drive without insurance. you got to get it. And, uh, well, the premiums are just outlandish these days, and we know that to be the case. And yesterday, the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, said that Ontario now has the highest passenger auto insurance premiums in Canada, despite the fact that we have one of the lowest rates of car crashes and injuries. That's one of the findings that uh, Bonnie Lissick had yesterday. Here's a little bit of what uh, she had to say. We obtained 10 insurance quotes for a consumer with the same characteristics, but different residential locations, and found that their auto insurance cost ranged from $1,200 a year for an individual living in London, Ontario, to $3,350 a year for somebody living in Brampton. So this is a, well, what's commonly known now as postal code premiums. In other words, one of the determinants, uh, the insurance industry will tell you, no, it's not, it's just a small thing, but one of the determinants is where you live, the neighborhood in which you live will, do, to a certain extent, determine how much or how little you're going to pay. It's how, very rarely how little. Uh, and, and this has been going on for years, okay? This is one of the tools, and, and I know they do all this through statistics and everything, and they'll just say, well, you know what, Bill? The neighborhood that you're living in right now, they have a higher accident rate, so your, your rates are going up, even though you may not have had an accident. That's just the way it's going to be. Uh, postal code premiums. Now, Doug Ford has been talking about this for the last couple of years and say, yeah, that's unfair. We just, we got to get rid of that. It's going on. It's worse now than it was a few years ago. That's only one of the many things that, uh, that she talked about uh, in her report, rather extensive report. Uh, and uh, there's a lot about uh, how the government handled COVID as well from a dollars and cents standpoint. And we need to talk about that too. Do we have Peter with us now? Okay. All right. Uh, to, to shed some light on this and give us some perspective, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program, uh, Peter Tabins, who, of course, is the interim leader of the Ontario NDP and, of course, MPP for Toronto Danforth. Uh, Peter, busy day today, I'm sure. Thank you so much for the time. Well, it's a pleasure, Bill. Thanks for getting in touch with me. Let me ask you right off the bat about the auto insurance thing that uh, that uh, the Auditor General talked about. I, I just mentioned the, the, the common phrase a lot of you guys use and, and we've used on the air too is postal code premiums. In other words, uh, where you live, the neighborhood in which you live or the community in which you live, to a certain extent determines how high your rates are going to be. Uh, it's wrong. It's unethical. Uh, it's unfair. Uh, the premiers even admitted that, but it's still going on. Yeah, I know. And, and it's extremely frustrating because the province of Ontario has the power to point out that, you know, you're overcharging, you're charging unfairly. We know that Ontario has some of the highest rates in Canada, although we have some of the lowest injury rates. So there's a lot of room there. And as I understand that these auto insurance companies are doing very well financially, I think it's it's a responsibility, frankly, for the Premier to step in, say to the um, the regulatory body, look, these motorists are being taken advantage of 
we need to change the rules so that things are fair and so people aren't getting charged rates that are really high. And, and they come back, and you've been part of this debate for as long as you've been in public life. The industry will come back and say, well, you know, there's so much fraud out there, deception, that you know, uh, that's why we have to charge so much. And it's, uh, okay, that's a problem. But that's, that's not my problem because I'm not defrauding anybody, uh, yet I'm that's still right. paying the price for it. Well, if, in fact, fraud's going on, then you need to take action. And one of the things that I've always heard is a problem is auto body shops that may well be taking advantage of the situation. Well, <laughs> Take, go out and monitor those shops, and the ones that are bad players, cut them out of the picture. Now, why should motorists have to pay for this? Frankly, this is a powerful industry. It does well. It has the ability to go after those who are cheating it. So do it, uh, but don't take it out of the hide of people who are just trying to get to work, uh, get on with their lives, and don't want to charge or be charged outrageous fees. Well, I mean, if they're going to commit to building more and more highways, there's going to be more and more driving, which means the rates are going to go up even higher than they are right now. So uh, th one of the frustrations that I've felt, and I know you have as long as you've been at Queen's Park, is is the government of the day, and there have been a few of them over the last few years, as we know, essentially yep. lets the in uh, auto insurance industry write their own uh, parameters. I mean, they make up the rules because as soon as the government tries to change something or impose it, they cry poor and say, okay, well, just pack up and leave then, and you'll have no insurance. Yeah, and, and I've been through rounds of that. I, I encountered that under the Liberals as well. Uh, and you're right, you know, they will make all kinds of noise. But, you know, if they pack up and leave, other provinces run their own auto insurance uh, systems. You know, it, it isn't as though the money isn't here in Ontario to actually provide for auto insurance. It isn't as though people aren't willing to pay a fee. Uh, but when you take advantage of it, uh, take advantage of them, then frankly, back off. Just back off. Stop gouging people. Stop doing this charging by postal code and give people fair fees that they can afford. And let's get on with life. And, and Doug Ford has the power, the authority, and I think the responsibility to take this on. He knows it's wrong. He said it publicly. Well, we've mm -hmm. tried to put through private members' bills to change the rules. He's not supportive of that. Okay, you don't like our bills? Go ahead. You got the power. Do something about it. And I'm glad the Auditor General called him out on it. Well, I'm hoping there's going to be some questions about that later on this morning when uh, when he has his uh, presser in about 45 minutes. Uh, lots of other stuff, Peter. We haven't got time to cover everything in, in the Auditor General's report. Uh, but a, a good deal of it, as you know, uh, was was focusing on how this government handled COVID over the last two and a half years, and more importantly, how they handled the money and the resources that they were given. And it, yeah. and it's not a pretty picture. We've had a lot of vaccines that, uh, that went bad uh, sitting in somebody's warehouse uh, because they didn't allocate them. They overordered. Uh, you know, the, the, even when the vaccines came out, uh, and I think you and I talked about this at the time, uh, the priority neighborhoods didn't get it in time. The ones that were lower, much lower on the list did, which, by the way, all happened to have PC MPPs. So you know, it, was, it seemed more political. At a time when we were in a crisis, a medical crisis, it seemed they were still playing politics with us. Yeah. You know, their, their focus on using private health care companies instead of actually putting the money into the public system where people don't have an incentive to make more so that they're richer, but actually just have an incentive to get the job done so that people are vaccinated and protected. That's a huge problem for them. I mean, they, they're, they've done that with long-term care. Uh, they're trying to privatize more and more of our hospital services. Uh, I think you can look at our experience during COVID and know, frankly, that it's a model that doesn't work. So get back to 
public delivery of healthcare services like this, avoid profiteering, avoid the kind of waste that we've seen, and run a system that works for the people who need it, the people of this province. I, I don't, well, I was going to say, I don't understand why this government can't sort this out, but I think I do. I mean, their, their whole thing is making sure that people are already very well off continue to be even more well off, the well-connected. Uh, the other thing that jumps out among many, of course, uh, uh, and we just talked a minute ago about the highway construction, the two highway projects that uh, the Premier seems committed to. Uh, and uh, as the Auditor General staff found out, uh, in, in that instance, uh, they basically ignored the advice of their own experts within the Transportation Department that said that you don't fund those yet. We need that money someplace else. As a matter of fact, the money had already been allocated for other highway projects, and they've been shelved now uh, because these seem to be the two pet projects for the Premier. Yeah, that was that was also very disturbing. The the projects that were shelved in northern Ontario should not have been shelved because we've got real safety problems up there. Uh, we have consistently high accident rates, uh, personal injury and death rates. They're, they were prioritized for a reason, and that was to protect the people in those areas. But as I'm sure you're well aware, particularly Highway 413, uh, the one that will run through the Greenbelt, is one that's really just being pushed because a whole bunch of land speculators bought land there and they want to make an incredible profit by having that land serviced by a major highway. We should not have our transportation decisions in Ontario driven by the needs of speculators who buy up land in the hope that it'll become more valuable, more serviceable. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And I, I think in this province, people have a right to expect that transportation decisions will be made based on their needs, not on the needs of speculators who are trying to make a quick buck by buying property and then flipping it later. But it really shouldn't come as a surprise, though, Peter. I mean, because one of the other elements that uh, the Auditor General talked about yesterday uh, was was about the Greenbelt itself, as you mentioned. Uh, Doug Ford's own task force that he appointed, the Housing Affordability Task Force that reported back to him earlier this year, said there's more than enough available land for them to meet all of the uh, the housing uh, numbers that they were trying to attain without yep. going into the green belt. Don't go into the green belt. Well, he ignored that advice, too, from his own people. That's right. And uh, again, it doesn't matter where the advice comes from. In the end, he's driven by looking after friends who are trying to make a quick buck. That's what's going on. And having the Auditor General come out and add to that, provide even more information, more facts, very useful. Uh, but I, I have to say, people can't understand this government unless they understand that they're all about making friends in the development and real estate industry very, very wealthy. And once you understand that, all the rest of it kind of makes sense. I mean, not that it makes sense in a good way, but you can under you can follow the dots. Uh, and that that is a fundamental problem with this government. It's not looking out for us. It's not looking out for everyday people. It's looking out for these extremely wealthy land speculators. That makes no sense for this province, none at all. Lots to cover here, and I know that uh, that you're going to attempt to do that in the days uh, ahead here before we, well, you go to Christmas break coming up, I guess, in just a couple of weeks. Anyway, so uh, we'll stay in touch, certainly. We'll be following uh, what's going to be happening in the legislature. Uh, Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day. Peter Tabbins, who's the interim leader of the Ontario NDP and, of course, the de facto leader of the opposition now, uh, since the NDP uh, have more seats than the Liberals uh, in the Ontario legislature. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Well, let's talk about what's going on in Alberta. Of course, they've got a new premier now. Jason Kenney stepped down. As a matter of fact, he's quit the legislature there as of this week. Uh, but uh, Danielle Smith, who is now the uh, the premier of that province, uh, promised during the campaign that she was going to introduce what she called the Sovereignty Act. Well, she's done that. It's called the Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act. I, I know that may sound little innocuous, but uh, it's causing quite a, a stir, of course, not just in Alberta, but certainly in Ottawa, too. Uh, basically, because they're, it's, the bill, the intent of this, and we'll get into the details about this later on, basically saying they, should, you know, they want the federal government to just butt out and let them run the province the way they want to run it. Now, there's a couple of uh, pros and cons to that that we're going to get into. But uh, the premier says the bill is intended to defend Alberta's rights from so-called federal overreach on issues ranging from well, resource development, climate change, uh, firearm bans, etc. Uh, the Prime Minister was asked about that just yesterday, and uh, he says, look, he's not looking to get into a confrontation here. I'm not going to take anything off the table, but I'm also not looking for a fight. Uh, we want to continue to be there to deliver for Albertans. There's going to be things that we agree with that government on. There's going to be things we disagree with them on. Uh, but is there going to be a confrontation as a result of this? Uh, our next guest uh, is going to shed some light on that for us. Uh, he is, of course, Daniel Bailand, who is the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, Danielle, always a pleasure. Thank you for the time today. Thanks for the invitation. Is this a, a fight waiting to happen here between the Premier and the Prime Minister? Well, uh, you know, I think the, the fight started a, a long time ago in a sense that, in a way, uh, you know, Jason Kenney, although he resigned and he condemns uh, the what Danielle Smith wants to do, um, you know, during his pri uh, his premiership, uh, he uh, he criticized and he attacked the federal government on a regular basis. I think, you know, there is bad blood between um, the United Conservative Party government in Alberta and the Trudeau government. I mean, this is ideological. Uh, this is the, you know, uh, a conservative party. Uh, uh, in Alberta, the provincial level, in a province where you have very few uh, non-conservative federal MPs against, of course, a liberal prime minister uh, whose last name is Trudeau. Uh, and uh, as you know, uh, Pierre Trudeau was not very popular in Alberta, and that's the same thing for his son. So I think that this is not something that, you know, comes out of nowhere. Uh, Daniel Smith, I think, crafted this, uh, this bill that was just presented uh, um, and announced that she will move forward uh, with that sovereignty act in the context of her leadership race to please part of the the, the base of the uh, UCP, the United Conservative Party in Alberta, uh, who are really anti-Trudeau and, and who really want to increase provincial autonomy and think that the federal policies under Justin Trudeau are really hurting uh, Alberta. And so that's the response to, I think, pressures from part of the conservative base in the province. And... Uh, you know, it's a very controversial move, even in Alberta. Huh? Uh, don't think that all Albertans are really singing the praise of Danielle Smith and what, she, what she's doing. Uh, it's very controversial. Business people are pushing back. Uh, they think that it will create too much uh, political uncertainty, which is bad for business, uh, including people who deal with the oil industry. And you have also, of course, the NDP and, and many journalists uh, who find the, the, the bill to be reckless and, or at least problematic from a constitutional standpoint. Uh, you're absolutely right about not everybody buying into this. I'm sure you saw Don Martin's column in the National Post a, a couple of days ago. Uh, the headline essentially said, Danielle Smith's antics suggest she could soon claim the title of Alberta's briefest premier. Uh, and we have to put this in context. She was never elected to this office, of course. Uh, she ran for the leadership and won it and then won a by-election. 
Uh, so the voters of, of Alberta have not actually weighed in as to whether or not they want her to be the premier. And I guess there's going to be an election not, not too far from now. Uh, and you know, the point's well taken about where we're going on this, too. I mean, no matter whether we're talking about uh, Danielle Smith or, as you mentioned, Jason Kenney or Ralph Klein, I mean, how far back do you want to go? It's always been the sport almost in Alberta that whatever's wrong with this province, it's Ottawa's fault. And, and that plays pretty well out there, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, and, and it's not just, uh, frankly, in Alberta where you have a tendency to blame Ottawa for uh, things that you don't like, outcomes you don't like. Provincial politicians do that in, you know, uh, uh, in Quebec, uh, but also uh, we've seen that uh, under Danny Williams a while back in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. And, you know, it, it happens regularly. Uh, but it happens more in some provinces than others. And it's true that uh, uh, it's quite strong in Alberta when the Liberals are in power. When Stephen Harper was in power, you know, it, it was a different style, of course, different form of federalism. But many people, the conservatives in Alberta, thought provincial conservatives, or P, at the time it was the Progressive Conservative Party, they, they really thought, oh, we are basically in power in Ottawa. But since 2015, of course, things have changed. You have the Liberals back in power in Ottawa, and you have also, don't forget, the economic downturn that started really in 2014 that actually helped Rachel Notley and the NDP uh, to form government to, to win in 2015, the provincial elections, which was a, a major surprise for many people. And I think now uh, the economy actually is in Alberta is, is doing better, in part because oil prices are much higher than they were uh, a few years ago. Partly because of the outcome, uh, the, the 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 impact of the you know the Russian invasion of Ukraine on oil prices and so forth, so things are are going better economically, and so it's a bit like there is a lag. You know, Danielle Smith started to talk about this idea, and other people before her uh, to really have a very strong, you know, pushback against the federal government at a time where people in Alberta were really frustrated because of the economy. And, and although now there's still frustration, say, about inflation and other things, things are doing better. The government is running large budget surpluses. Danielle Smith uh, and her government are now sending checks to people to fight the negative consequences of inflation. So it seems that there might be a, a disconnect here between uh, what most Albertans are experiencing now in terms of, you know, a, a much better economy and uh, this very negative approach that Danielle Smith has adopted. And when, when things are better people might not be looking as much for confrontation uh, uh, with Ottawa than when things are not doing well. And so there is a base, part of the base of the, the Daniel Smith's party is really for this. Uh, and it's a base that's more rural or small town. Uh, of course, it's not very, the UCP is not popular in Edmonton. And even in Calgary, um, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, some areas of Calgary are not, uh, you know, they don't get the automatic support uh, in these ridings. So, uh, I think Danielle Smith's strategy is quite, um, you know, is a risky strategy politically to emphasize a pretty narrow base of people who are really committed to the war against Ottawa, really, <laughs> uh, um, against, I think, a majority of Albertans who are not really, it's not their main priority, you know, intergovernmental conflict. How difficult is this going to be to implement, though, Danielle, even if it, and I'm assuming it's going to pass the legislature. Uh, for instance, she talks about climate change and you know, we want to have control over what's going to happen with that. Supreme Court's already ruled on that. I mean, as a matter of fact, there yeah. were three court cases. Uh, the only one Ottawa lost was a, it was an Alberta judge, and it, that was overruled yeah. by the Supreme Court. Uh, you you can't take that away. I mean, it, it sounds as yeah. if uh, you know the Prime Minister, in his his way, has drawn a line in the sand and said, "Look, if you try to you know incursions into the stuff that's already been settled, uh, there's going to be some pushback here." Yes. So, 
we'll see what happens. I think that the, you know, first of all, this is a bill, not a law. Huh? It has to go through the legislative process. Amendments might be enacted. Uh, we'll see, you know, uh, uh, what will happen, what the final, the law will actually look like after it has received royal assent, you know. Um, uh, so there might still be some changes, significant changes. I think that the, if there are no major changes, I think that the uh, at, at some point the, the courts will uh, uh, will will um, will uh, you know step in uh, and we'll see uh, what happens. Of course, theoretically, you know, the federal government uh, uh, could uh, just strike down uh, 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 provincial legislation like like uh, the, this uh, this proposed sovereignty act. You know, it's called disallowance. Uh, but you know, the last time this this power that the the, the federal cabinet has. The last time it was used was in 1943, ironically, to take down an Alberta legislation. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was actually used a lot between 1867 and, and, and the early 1940s. This was used more than 100, to- uh, 100 times, this allowance. But now, of course, this will be a nuclear option. And I don't think that Justin Trudeau wants to do that because that will actually give ammunition to uh, Daniel Smith and probably help her. Uh, because that will create the sense that Alberta is really under attack by the federal government. So I don't think that Justin Trudeau will use this allowance. I would be very, very surprised if he does that. And I think politically it would be a mistake. So the hope is probably that the, the courts will take care of that business. Uh, um, but again, we'll see what the actual, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the the legislation itself, once it's signed and it's approved, it, 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 it has received royal uh, assent, whether, you know, the, it might be toned down. It's also really, the, it's been toned down. The, the old idea, uh, uh, in 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 you know, s- since the leadership campaign, uh, in some areas um, uh, regarding, for example, uh, uh, Supreme Court rulings that the, the province Alberta will abide to them. It's now, you know, really clearly stated in in the bill. So, um, uh, and it might also be more symbolic value to enact the the, the bill to make it a legislation. But then not to use it really, <laughs> not to invoke it, uh, uh, um, and, and that might also be uh, more of a, polit- a political gesture, symbolic gesture, than something that will actually be new, that will be used in terms of public policy. So we still don't know. There are a lot of unknowns here, and, and there's some, as you say, contentious items even within the Alberta legislature too. The w- one element that jumped out that a lot of people have commented on uh, is this bill would give her cabinet, her and her cabinet. Uh, the ability to pass legislation without having to go through the the legislature first. I don't. I can't see that sitting well uh, with the other members from other parts of the province. Does she need this act, though, Danielle? I, I mean, as we mentioned, there is a provincial election coming up not too far into the future. Uh, does she need this confrontation from Ottawa to 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 show Albertans that I'm the champion that can take on Ottawa? Well, I think it's more that she said she will do it during the campaign. So now she has to deliver on it for to keep her base on board. Because you know what Jason, what happened with Jason Kenny, right? <laughs> he was, you know, he was pushed out basically uh, by by the same part of the the UCP base that basically empowered Daniel Smith and and basically put her in charge, right? Mm-hmm. Voted for her in the leadership contest. So. Uh, you know, um, um, it's not unusual in Alberta for premiers to uh, to leave, you know, uh, to 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 be basically pushed out. Uh, um, and and I think that uh, Daniel Smith wants to basically emphasize the base, but that's a risk because you can alienate many people, you know, close to the center. Uh, uh, who, who was, and not just about intergovernmental relations, but as you mentioned about really 
uh, increasing really the power of cabinet and of the premier vis-a-vis the legislature uh, in a way that many people find uh, uh, problematic, to say the least. So I think it's a risky strategy. Uh, instead of trying to go more towards the center, she's really emphasizing this very strong stance against Ottawa and this populist rhetoric. And we'll see if, we'll see if it, it pays off next year when we have the, the actual provincial uh, elections uh, in Alberta. It's coming, it's coming up soon. And, um, and, and Danielle Smith, so far, I think she has been criticized quite widely for some of the things she's done and said. So we'll see also what happens beyond just this Sovereignty Act, uh, the other things that she does over the next uh, few months. Yeah, it's going to be quite a 2023 out in that province for sure. Daniel, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. You're most welcome. Have a wonderful day. You too. Daniel Bailan, Director of the McGill Institute for Study of Canada at, of course, McGill University. Uh, I want to pick up on this too because this sounds, I know this is a, a unique piece of legislation for Alberta, uh, but other provinces have tried to jump up and, and just say, uh, you know, we want our cake and eat it too. And it's not gone well for them. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Watching the World Cup, everybody's at one time or another tuning in to at least a few minutes of it, especially when uh, Canada is playing. But what about the events themselves? And because we always hear about the buildup in this. And we should mention, I'm sure many people already know that uh, the next World Cup is going to be in North America and Canada is going to have some of those dates. Uh, and that was a big to-do. It cost a lot of money. A lot of effort went into that. Uh, but the debate always is and probably always will be, uh, is there a benefit to doing this? Is there a benefit to hosting uh, sporting events of this magnitude? Uh, because invariably those who are proponents of, of bringing the games to Toronto or to Hamilton or to London, depends on what we're talking about here, are always going to say how this is going to make us a world-class city. And this is what we really need to put us on the map. And it's going to attract investment, et cetera, et cetera. You've heard that argument. Uh, there's an interesting op-ed piece in theconversation.com that talks about this. Uh, when hosting mega events like FIFA, cities market themselves at the expense of the most vulnerable. Uh, the author is David Roberts. David is the director of urban studies program at the University of Toronto and an associate professor with the University of Toronto. Uh, professor Roberts, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, I mean, you know, when I read this uh, the other day, of course, I conjured up visions of, of, you know, when Toronto wanted to have the Olympics. And, well, that was back mm-hmm. in the days of Mel Lastman, I suppose. Uh, and and the, the circus, I guess, that went on. That's why that bread versus circuses debate, I guess, uh, really started to surface. But you, you've really, yeah. I think, touched a nerve here with some people about, you know, is there a benefit here, really? Or is it just a perceived benefit? And what's the impact on cities? And it's a pretty complicated issue, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts, of course. And and no doubt the World Cup is fun. So there is there is a benefit in terms of in terms of just the, the kind of having a good time. Um, but there are, but there are significant costs for that party. Well, and that's one of the issues that always needs to be discussed. But and and there's going to be the upfront cost. Um, I know you mentioned mm-hmm. in the piece that you were down to the World Cup in South Africa you got a number of years ago. Uh, they built, I think, three brand new stadia for that, didn't they? I mean, there was a huge, huge cost to to, to that area just to, to build the infrastructure needed for the tournament. Yeah, and the stadiums are just the the tip of the iceberg, right? There's cost in terms of new transportation uh, initiatives. Uh, policing is obviously a, a huge cost, and other security related things. So uh, the the stadium them the stadia themselves is, is a, a, an enormous cost and one that um, often is misdirected. You're building giant stadiums in places that have no uh, future use for them, um, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. 
Well, and we saw that with the 76 Olympics in Montreal, didn't we? With the, the velodrome mm-hmm. that was built there for the cycling events. And I think, I think it just grew over. I mean, there was, they didn't have any use for it after the Olympics were finished. Uh, and, and we've seen that happen in so many other areas as well. What about the argument, mm-hmm. though, uh, Professor, uh, that, that we always hear here is that, okay, yeah, there's a huge cost there. We get that. But look at the benefits long term, uh, how this is going to change uh, the world's opinion of this particular community. And and this is going to attract investment. Is there anything to that? I think it's really difficult to, to um, make that to prove that case. I think that's the common argument. But there's not a lot of uh, clear cut studies that show that that actually happens um, over the long term and not to the extent where um you earn back the investment uh, that you make in 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 the run-ups to the games. So, yeah, absolutely, it's a it's a branding exercise, one that uh, can change the opinion about a particular city or a particular country. Um, but uh, but that changing of that opinion uh, doesn't necessarily translate into the the increased tourism or the increased foreign direct investment or or, or other types of investment that that make that balance sheet work out. I mean, we're having the same debate in Hamilton these days, of course, about the uh, the upcoming Commonwealth Games, the 2030 Commonwealth Games, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the, the 100th anniversary. And I'm, I'm sure you know the background. The first, com- well, they were the British Empire Games then was was here in Hamilton. So they feel that, you know, this is what we want to do. Uh, but there's always going to be a debate about cost, isn't there, about infrastructure. And as you mentioned, policing uh, and cleaning up the city. And I'm going to use that term not in a, in a good way, uh, where mm-hmm. you know, okay, we've got to get rid, and we saw this in Toronto when they were putting the games. We got to get get homeless people off the street. We got to get come on, clean this up here, yeah. get this out of here, uh, yeah. and and there are victims in this in that that whole scenario. Right, absolutely. So the financial costs are just the beginning, right? The social costs are are perhaps even larger, and they include yeah, trying to put your best foot forward, whatever that means, um, and it usually means uh, the displacement of. Uh, of the lowest income individuals, homelessness, homeless and others um, from areas that tourists and journalists will spend their time in during the event. Uh, some of that displacement is short term. Um, it's extra policing to uh, make it uncomfortable for homeless people to be in tourist centers, um, for example. And some of it's long term, long term gentrification that replaces affordable housing uh, with luxury condos because that's the division of the world-class city that the that the um, the city builders are trying to to show off uh, with these games. Well, and and your point about you know is there any solid evidence that this works? I think is is very germane to the discussion here. Uh, I can't really think off the top of my head of a, a city that has benefited to that point where all of a sudden, you know, they, they've been elevated in the eyes of uh, the economic world or, or whatever uh, because of the fact that they've hosted the games. I mean, big cities were big cities. You know, Vancouver was Vancouver mm-hmm. before that. Moscow was Moscow. Uh, L.A. Right. was L.A. I, I, I know there are some smaller examples of that, too. But, uh, as you know, you have to ask yourself about the benefit there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the examples that some point to or like Barcelona after the Summer Olympics. But at the same time, you know, Barcelona was Barcelona, right? So I'm not sure that people, that many people um, venture to visit Barcelona just because they once held an Olympics. Unless, I guess, the corollary to that is uh, if, if, you know, if there's an effective reuse of those facilities, 
uh, five years later, people may want to go there, but it's to see the facility being used then. It's not because it was used as, as an Olympic event or whatever the case might be. Uh, tourists, I would think, Professor, tend to deal in the here and now, not in the what was, unless we're looking at Rome or something like that. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. So I, it, is a, it is a question on what can the, these spaces be used for after. That is, that, that's an, an essential question that cities have to think about when they're, they're, um, they're organizing these types of events. But I think the, other, the bigger question is, is that the right investment at all, right? So uh, spending public dollars on giant tourist-related sports infrastructure versus other things that those dollars could be uh, used for is, is, is a question that we have to ask ourselves um, if we're interested in a more equitable society. And, and that's what it really boils down to most of the time, isn't it? Limited amount of dollars, and should we be spending it on this as opposed to that? Uh, and that's why I guess the argument is usually presented, well, there's a long-term economic benefit. And, and I was in Hamilton when the, the World Road Cycling Championships happened it was about 20 years ago now. Uh, and we did hear stories about, you know, con- people that, from other parts of the world that saw that. And I don't know, Hamilton's a great place. And there were some inquiries about investment, et cetera. But th- that, th- I don't know that that's the rule. It might happen from time to time, and I'm sure it does. I know it did in that particular situation. Uh, mm-hmm. But but it, it's, it's not really something you can hang your hat on and say, this is going to happen now because we did this. Right. And I think you the, the equation is probably better when you're talking about a, a smaller scale event. Um, uh, than the Olympics or the World Cup because you can direct your investment in different ways. The 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 total cost is is quite a bit lower. Uh, it's when you get to these large scale events and Commonwealth is getting close to it that you have such a magnitude of spending that that it only is by very fuzzy math that you'd ever balance that uh, balance that out in terms of future investment. Is that why? These huge events, whether it's the Olympics, as it has been in the last little while, and, and even the World Cup that we're watching these uh, last couple of weeks, uh, they tend to go to countries that, and, and the communities that have a lot of money. They, in other words, we can afford to do mm-hmm. this uh, because we've got, you know, just, we don't, and we don't much care about the social impact. I mean, because they don't yeah. seem to care much about the social impact, even if they don't get the game. So there's, there's, there's no conscience involved in this. They're just, yeah, we'll spend the money uh, because it puts us on the world stage. And, and as a matter of fact, as we saw with China uh, hosting the Olympics a couple of different times, uh, they look at this as a PR move to kind of say, see, we're not as bad as you thought we were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, it's, what we've seen is that when there have been uh, votes, referendums on cities hosting, most of the time citizens have been like, no, it's not, doesn't make sense for us uh, to host these games. Or when there have been other sort of democratic pushes, uh, like um, the Bread Not Circuses debates in, when Toronto was looking at hosting the Olympics in the 90s, there's been democratic pushback and um for the most part the ioc the owners of the olympics and fifa the owners of the world cup uh, aren't interested in in going to countries where there's a lot of debate on how to to run these events they'd much rather go to a place where they could get their guaranteed uh, spectacular events in the way that they want it um without thinking about this the kind of more social dynamics that citizens might care about Given the time and place that we are right now, um, you know, no government is rife with money these days, uh, federal, mm-hmm. provincial governments, and certainly not municipal governments. Uh, is, is, uh, we're going to see the demise of this, like fewer and fewer com- companies or even cities, I guess, are going to be interested in this because they just don't have it. And feds and provinces, I, I guess, traditionally have d- donated money for these causes. 
Uh, not so much anymore. If they do, it's not as much as they used to. Yeah, I think that um, the World Cup is a little bit different scale in that it's spread out among, among various different cities. And, and there's a lot of different countries that might be interested in, uh, in hosting it for a variety of reasons. But we're seeing increasingly uh, a difficult time for the Olympics in terms of finding a, a willing host city um, that's willing to make the scale investment that the Olympics um, demand uh, and willing to put up with the social consequences of that. Well, as we've noticed in the last couple of uh, Winter Olympics, especially uh, where, where cities have have bowed out of the, the bidding, said, "No, we forget it. Yes. Uh, too rich for us. We're just not going to go there anymore." Uh, exactly. Which, which has turned the debate around. For instance, for the Summer Olympics, uh, a permanent home for it. You know, let's let's do it in Athens, and that's going to be the home. That's where it started, as opposed to trying to go around uh, from different parts around the globe here to try to attract that sort of an interest. It's becoming a very expensive proposition. Yeah, I think from a sustainability perspective, a permanent home makes a lot of sense. Well, we'll see where the debate's going to go on that in the next little while. Uh, as I say, you can go to theconversation.com and uh, read the piece yourself from uh, Professor David Roberts. Uh, Professor, thank you for this, uh, for, for writing it, first of all. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Take care. That's an interesting piece, especially in light of the fact that uh, there is still discussion about, well, there was the Pan Am Games uh, that uh, Toronto slash Hamilton slash a couple of other communities hosted a number of years ago. And, uh, you know, that was the same argument about the economic uplift that was going to happen. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.